This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 10, Pietistic Postmillennialism. A holy disposition and spiritual taste, where grace is strong and lively, will enable the soul to determine what actions are right in becoming Christians, not only more speedily, but far more exactly than the greatest abilities without it. He has, as it were, almost a spirit within him that guides him. The habit of his mind is attended with a taste by which he immediately relishes that air and mien which is benevolent, and disrelishes the contrary. Thus it is that a spiritual disposition and taste teaches and guides a man in his behavior in the world. Jonathan Edwards, 1747 By what standard? R.J. Rushdoony, 1959 The postmillennial viewpoint is committed to optimism regarding the outcome of the Church's efforts in history. As is the case in so many movements, there is a division within the camp there is a biblical law-oriented, social reform-oriented wing, and a more antinomian, socially non-committal, personal transformation-oriented wing. Both believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform men and societies, but there is a great division over the nature of the link between personal transformation and social transformation. We can call one wing the judicialists, and the other wing the pietists. Postmillennialism is an ancient view of eschatology, going back at least to Eusebius, early 4th century. It was not, as is charged by dispensational theologians, though never by dispensational church historians holding the Ph.D., invented in the early 18th century by the Unitarian Daniel Whitby. I mention this because it has been part of the dispensational apologetic to lie, decade after decade, about Whitby's supposed invention of postmillennialism. Because the dispensationalists' rhetoric equates postmillennialism with theological liberalism, e.g., the late 19th century social gospel movement, it has been embarrassing for them to admit to their students that postmillennialism was pioneered in part by Augustine and John Calvin, and developed more fully by the Puritans of the 17th century. The Puritans were the most orthodox Protestants in history. So this creates a major problem for the dispensationalists when they try to equate liberalism and postmillennialism. Anytime you see some author write that Whitby invented postmillennialism, you can be absolutely sure that this person has never studied church history or the history of doctrine from a specialist in either field, unless he is a self-conscious, deliberate liar and dispensational propagandist who has decided to mislead his readers for the sake of the cause. The great promoters of early modern postmillennialism were the Scottish Calvinists and English Puritans of the 17th century. It was they who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger Catechism, answer 191 of which is postmillennial. It was dispensationalism that appeared late, about 1830, rather than postmillennialism. Postmillennialism has been linked to a defense of the biblical law only in the case of the Puritans especially the New England Puritans, and the Christian Reconstruction Movement. 
In this sense, Christian Reconstruction is socially, judicially, neo-Puritan. It is not an heir of the other Puritan tradition, best represented by the mid-17th century pietist expositor William Gurnall. The pietist wing of Puritanism emphasized the discipline of personal introspection, extended prayer, and personal individualistic ethics to the exclusion of programs for social transformation. It was more Baptist individualist in outlook than Presbyterian covenantal. It is with us still. The indivisible covenantal link between biblical law and postmillennialism, as I have argued, is the presence of God's sanctions in history. If there were no guaranteed historic sanctions, then the two positions could be held independently, but covenant theology does not allow this. Logically, the two may somehow be separated. Theologically, they cannot be. There is positive corporate feedback in history for covenant keepers and negative corporate feedback for covenant breakers. Revivalism The kind of Calvinistic postmillennialism preached by Jonathan Edwards was non-theonomic. It relied entirely on the movement of the Holy Spirit in men's hearts. The revivalist preachers of the Great Awakening did not discuss the possibility of progressive cultural transformation in response to widespread communal covenantal faithfulness to the stipulations of biblical law. This was the great defect with the postmillennial revival inaugurated by Edwards and his followers. They fully expected to see the blessings of God come as a result of strictly individualistic conversions. They had no social theory relating personal salvation and social transformation. In this sense, Jonathan Edwards was not the last New England Puritan. He was a pietist to the core. He and his followers destroyed the cultural remnants of Puritanism in New England. Consider Edwards' treatise on the religious affections. There is nothing on the specifics of the law of God for culture. Page after page is filled with the words sweet and sweetness. A diabetic reader is almost risking a relapse by reading this book in one sitting. The words sometimes appear three or four times on a page. Consider these phrases. Sweet entertainment. Sweet ideas. Sweet and ravishing entertainment. Sweet and admirable manifestations. Glorious doctrines in his eyes, sweet to the taste. Hearts filled with sweetness. All these appear in just two paragraphs. And while Edwards was preaching the sweetness of God, Arminians were hot-gospeling the Holy Commonwealth of Connecticut into political antinomianism. Where sweetness and emotional hot flashes are concerned, we learn that Calvinistic antinomian preaching is no match for Arminian antinomian preaching. The Great Awakening of the mid-1700s faded, and it was followed by the Arminian revival of the early 1800s the Second Great Awakening, leaving emotionally burned-over districts and cults as its devastating legacy to America. Because the postmillennial preaching of the Edwardians was culturally antinomian and pietistic, it crippled the remnants of Calvinistic political order in the New England colonies, helping to produce a vacuum that Arminianism and the Unitarianism filled. This is not to argue that these revivals were uniformly negative in their effects, People did get saved. The Holy Spirit was at work. But so was Satan. In the end, culturally speaking, the negative forces won out. The antinomianism of the two great awakenings triumphed institutionally. 
Peter Lighthart is correct. Quote, Antinomian revivalism shifted the basis for social theory from the theocratic and authoritarian Puritan emphasis to a democratic one. End quote. A common ground, religiously neutral political order became the new ideal. Thus was born the American civil religion. The pietist humanist alliance became law. The Calvinistic postmillennialism of the 19th century was only marginally superior to Edwards' version. It rejected, i.e., rarely discussed, the Old Testament case laws. It was not tied explicitly to biblical creationism, so Warfield's acceptance of Scottish common-sense rationalism and his acceptance of long ages of geological and biological history undercut the Princeton Seminary apologetic. Without explicitly biblical standards of righteousness, point three of the biblical covenant model, meaning standards for corporate righteousness, there has to be an appeal to some sort of common sense, natural law-based ethical system. This idea undermines the idea of a uniquely biblical social ethics. It is Trojan horse ethics, or, borrowing from Van Til, the nose of the covenant-breaking camel inside the covenant-keeper's tent. The Bible-believing post-millennialist who rejects the legally binding character of the case laws of the Old Testament finds himself epistemologically helpless in the face of the proposed reform program of the social gospel post-millennialist or the liberation theology post-millennialist. All he can do is propose some version of the right-wing enlightenment, free market economics, or medieval guild socialism as an alternative. The debate becomes a shouting match of I like this program best. Bettner's Postmillennialism No better example of the ideological helplessness of the non-theonomic postmillennialist can be found in recent history than Lorraine Bettner. His chapter, The World is Growing Better, gives away the store to the humanists, and all in the name of Jesus. Ignoring the case laws of the Old Testament, on what compelling basis could Bettner have opposed the looming rise of the humanists' new world order. He cites the following as evidence of Christian social progress. Quote, A spirit of cooperation is much more manifest among the nations than it has ever been before. End quote. He offers as proof of this argument the post-World War II growth of compulsory tax-financed government-to-government foreign aid programs. Quote, as evidence of international goodwill, witness the fact that the United States this fiscal year, July 1957 to July 1958, appropriated more than $3 billion for the Foreign Aid and National Security Program, and since the end of World War II, has given other nations more than $60 billion for those purposes. End quote. This surely sounds like a defense of political liberalism. Added to this, he says, was lots of voluntary international giving. Quote, this huge amount of goods and services has been given freely by this enlightened and predominantly Protestant nation to nations of other races and religions with no expectation that it will ever be paid back, an effective expression of unselfishness and international goodwill. End quote. Bettner was not a political liberal. He was merely a traditional pietistic postmillennialist. Twenty years later, or thereabouts, a friend of Ray Sutton's phoned Bettner and asked him some questions. Quote, How do you believe the millennial millennium will end, will come? End quote, he asked. 
Bettner replied in good Edwardsian fashion, quote, I believe that a great revival will sweep the earth, end quote. The friend then asked, Yes, but how will you know when that great revival has come? Bettner replied, I don't know. I never thought about that question before. This is the problem. Without biblical law, we have no biblical standards of corporate transformation. When Sutton related his account of this discussion, he was unaware that Bettner was still alive. A few weeks later, he received a letter from Bettner, one of the last that he ever wrote. He denied having said such a thing. His explanation of how he could have not have said it is worth reprinting, and Sutton reprinted it. Quote, In this book, The Millennium, page 58, I state that the millennium comes by imperceptible degrees, and I liken it to the coming of spring and summer, that there are many advances and many apparent setbacks as the winter winds, winter winds give way to the gentler spring breezes, and after a time we find ourselves in the glorious summer season. And we certainly do know that we have passed from winter to summer. I add that we cannot pinpoint the arrival of the millennium any more than we can pinpoint certain great events in history, and over, that over the long term the millennium comes as the gospel is preached over the world and the Holy Spirit brings more and more people into the kingdom. So it is incorrect to quote me as having said that I had ever thought about that question before. Sutton points out that Bettner's response indicates that Sutton's account of the phone conversation had been on target. Bettner reverts to a metaphor of seasonal change instead of offering explicitly biblical standards of covenantal justice and prosperity. Sutton comments, quote, Saying you perceive the kingdom just as you would realize that it is summer is not exactly telling how a person knows, nor is it telling you how to know it is summer. In the February issue of Covenant Renewal, this was my initial point. What are the concrete indicators that the millennium has arrived? He argues like the romantic who simply says, I know I'm in love because I know. Love is like the summer that follows the cold, wintry winds of infatuation. You know when it has arrived, and I'm telling you that I know I'm in love. End quote. Sutton has identified Bettner's theological problem, his unwillingness to use the biblical covenant in his analysis of history. Quote, the real problem, however, is that Dr. Bettner has an individualistic view of the millennium, which is opposed to a covenantal perspective. End quote. So did virtually all the postmillennialists in modern history, except for the Puritan activists. To demonstrate the advent of the millennial era of blessings, traditional postmillennialists would apparently add up the number of professing Christians and then compare this figure with the number of professing non-Christians. In response to such thinking, Sutton cites Isaiah 2, 2-4. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. 
The issue is not merely personal conversion. The issue is the law of God. There must be institutional conversion to God, not simply personal conversion. Quote, Isaiah says that it is when the nations of the world come to Christ and to the law of God that we not only know that we have truly come to Christ, but we know that the millennium has arrived. I don't agree that we will not definitely be able to mark the beginning of the millennium. It is when the nations of the world give up natural law. It is when the nations of the world turn to the law of God for their politics, their economics, their science, their everything. End quote. In short, quote, Isaiah not only describes conversions, he speaks about law-abiding conversions. He not only discusses converted people, he describes converted nations with converted laws, converted politics, converted economics, converted education, and so forth. And each converted sphere is known to be converted by its compliance to the law of God. As Scripture says, By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2.3 Converted Christians are not enough. Converted Christians involved in politics or any number of activities is not enough. Converted Christians who keep God's commandments, however, is more than enough. For too long, Christians have naively thought that all they need is a moral majority. Yes, we need a majority of Christians, but we need Christians committed to the biblical covenant and who have the opportunity, authority, and grace to apply God's law in the societies of the world. Until they do, the millennium has not begun. End quote. It is worth noting that Reverend Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority Organization was officially shut down by its board of trustees three months after Sutton's newsletter appeared. America's majority is not moral, biblically speaking, and common ground morality is in any case insufficient to redeem a civilization that remains under a centuries-old self-maledictory oath to God. Conclusion Ever since the demise of the original Puritan theological and cultural vision, based on an affirmation of Old Covenant law, postmillennialism in Anglo-American history has been deeply antinomian. It has not affirmed the continuing validity of the Old Covenant case laws, it has therefore had nothing except the spirit-led feelings of the individual human heart to test both behavior and institutional operations. It has had no concept of institutional justice. It has affirmed progress, but it has not affirmed specific standards of progress. It predicts that things will eventually get better, yet it has no formal judicial standards of better. This implicit individualism has been out of conformity with biblical covenantalism. Nineteenth-century Presbyterian postmillennialism rested on the presupposition of the validity of Scottish common-sense rationalism. This philosophical system, like all the other philosophical products of Newtonianism, did not survive the effects of Kantianism, Darwinism, and modern quantum physics. Thus, postmillennialism faded rapidly after the death of B.B. Warfield, until Christian Reconstruction's revival of a neo-Puritan postmillennialism in the 1970s. It is not enough to predict the coming of a wave of mass conversions. It is not enough to pray and work for them. It is mandatory that specifically biblical categories be used to distinguish a work of God from a spiritual counterfeit. Professed conversions, apart from the ethical and judicial requirements of the biblical covenant, are counterfeits. We have seen antinomian revivals before, 
and they do not last. They leave in their wake spiritually burned over districts, emotional exhaustion, and humanism. What we need are mass conversions to Christ which lead men to ask the two crucial questions, how should we then live, and what is to be done? Then the new converts must be directed to the Bible, all of it, not just the New Testament, for their answers. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.